1: Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists in 2014. I'm Chris Smith and this week we're taking on your science questions. Anything science that you would like to ask. Already in, we'll be finding out how does gravity work, in so much as we can answer that. Also, how do hailstones form and if metal sparks in a microwave... Why don't microwaves spark off themselves? Lots more like that coming along. Let's meet this week's team. Dave Ansell is one of the team. Uh, He, last time he was on the programme, made ice cream in the kitchen with liquid nitrogen. Very tasty it was too. Indeed. Yeah, then you told me it came from a pathology department, the liquid nitrogen. I did wonder what the lumpy bits were. I couldn't possibly comment. Also with us is uh, Dominic Ford, who is an astronomer and space scientist. He's always pointing his telescope out of his bedroom window looking for heavenly bodies. The um, next door neighbor, drop the charges, Dominic?
2: Drop the charges, yes.
1: Pleased to hear that. And also with us is Mark Peplow, who's a science writer from Cambridge and also in a past life. I think you were a nuclear or particle physicist, was it, Mark? I was a
3: chemist. I did used to work with radioactive material, though, which was pretty exciting.
1: If you would like to get a question into them, email chris at scientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. Now, I've also asked the team to come up with their predictions for science breakthroughs in 2014. We'll hear what they are in due course. But also, what would you at home like to see discovered or invented this year? We'd like your suggestions as well.
3: The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk.
1: First let's kick off with uh, a couple of questions And uh, Mark, Nina's got in touch And she says um, We made gunpowder in our sixth form Using the standard recipe Didn't ever make gunpowder at school This sounds very exciting I'd like to go to her school Uh, She said... um, We mixed potassium, charcoal and sulphur. We wanted to try and change the colour of the flame by using different metals, strontium, copper, magnesium, for instance, but these didn't burn. So I was wondering if you could suggest why using different salts in the same ratio didn't work in the gunpowder, and how could we produce coloured flames in our gunpowder? What do you think?
3: I suspect it's because if you're detonating gunpowder, the reaction's simply too quick, Everything's going to be blown apart before you actually get a chance to excite those metal atoms and start them emitting the colour of light that you want. Um, Fireworks are constructed in a very particular way to actually make those metals burn. It's a slightly slower burn as the fireworks go off. And that's why when you see fireworks go off, you've got strontium in there and that's making it it, this intense red, barium for green and, and so on.
4: The other effect is that if you've got lots and lots of carbon in there, carbon tends to glow. If it hasn't actually burnt completely, mm. completely combusted carbon glows bright yellow. Yeah. So if you're not careful, that's going to completely overwhelm your nice colours in the fireworks as well. Did she say what colours she got in the
3: explosions?
1: No, she just said it didn't work
3: very well. No. Oh, well, that is a shame.
1: Right, Dominic, one for you. Mike says, I had a dream about the use of old light to solve the disappearance of a woman. Now,
2: I'm not asking you to solve the disappearance of his lady, but does light age, he's wondering? Well, light's made up of these particles we call photons, which seem to basically be quite timeless. They don't age when they're travelling through free space. They can be absorbed by things they pass through. But uh, it's actually quite useful, particularly to people like me who are astronomers, that light can travel for billions of years through free space completely untrained because that means we can look back through the universe and see light
4: that was emitted billions of years ago and see what objects in the universe look like in the very distant past. The one way it does change if it's going an awful long way is it can get redshifted. So things which are an awful long way away from us seem to look redder than, than they should do because the space inside is stretched and the stretch stretched the photon.
2: That's right. When you're looking at these very old objects, you're seeing the fact that the universe is expanding around us over periods of billions of years. And as that universe expands, light has a particular wavelength associated with it and that wavelength gets stretched. And red light has longer wavelength than, than blue light. So this light becomes redder as it gets older.
1: Thank you, Dominic. Now, on the subject of light, we've got a good quiz question for everyone this week. Lightning. We had a bit of a thunderstorm, uh, the first of 2014, around Cambridgeshire earlier this week. So I thought, why don't we have a quiz question relevant to lightning and thunder? How many pieces of toast do you think you can make with the energy in a lightning bolt, assuming you could harness all of the energy in a lightning bolt, how many pieces of toast could you get out of your lightning bolt? We've tweeted this, and we're also asking you at home now for your speculations. Uh, Justin, who's at Swedish Red Devil, says five. No, maybe six. A little bit low, Justin. And also, we heard from someone else. Just find it. Mata tat says uh, one. But she does go on, or he does go on. Not clear if it's he or she. Says one. If it's like really, really, really ginormous now we're also experimenting here on the naked scientist this week as we do on these Q&A shows and Dave sitting here has got a fine array of bits and pieces for us this week
4: Dave what are you going to be doing so I'm going to be trying to build a jet-powered boat using a sort of half litre bottle so just a water bottle Uh, I need a drill to make a hole in it a straw and some plasticine and some vinegar and some bicarbonate of soda
1: Right, so there's your shopping list for during the show. So when the adverts come on, no, I'm just kidding, go to your kitchen cupboard, grab your plastic drinking bottle.
4: Any, any particular size, needed?
1: Um, I reckon about
4: half a litre is good for this. And you need some plasticine to weight it, and the straw, and some bicarb and vinegar. Brilliant. So grab those things, and uh, we'll tell you what to do with
1: them in just a second. Now, one of the other things we we're talking about this week is what we think our predictions are for 2014. Mark, you've been actually writing quite a bit about this for various science magazines and journals and things. So, what what are you telling the world? that we should be looking out for, scientifically speaking, in 2014.
3: Well, one of the things that's going to potentially be quite exciting this year is uh, that we're actually uh, going to start to see uh, products that incorporate graphene on the market. Uh, Graphene is this one-atom-thick sheet of carbon arranged in a, a sort of hexagonal honeycomb Pattern. It was first isolated just ten years ago and it's got some remarkable properties. It's stiff as diamond hundreds of times stronger than steel wait for weight but it's extremely flexible and electrical charge travels through it much much faster than other materials like silicon so scientists have spent the last ten years trying to investigate its properties and find uses for it and there have been uh, the odd one or two very niche products on the market but this year um, we're being promised actual commercial devices and the, the first major one is likely to be touch screens for smartphones how does
1: it work that's different from the silicon that we use at the moment or other similar materials as
3: semiconductors we already have? Well, um, let's look at a touchscreen. That's made out of something called indium indium tin oxide uh, and it's electrode, basically. So when your finger touches it, it changes the electrical current going through it and the device can sense where your finger is. That's why your phone knows where you're prodding it. And the key thing about indium tin oxide is it's transparent because you need to see the stuff going on underneath it that your phone is projecting. The trouble is it's quite brittle And indium, the key ingredient in it, is increasingly rare, so it's getting more and more expensive. Graphene potentially has these properties uh, that it's transparent, conducts electricity very well, Um, so it could be a much more robust replacement. The key is going to be manufacturing it cheaply enough and at high enough quality.
1: When they were making graphene in the early days, they used to basically peel off bits with sellotape from pencil leads and things. So presumably they're not using that method to make sheets of graphene for mobile phones. They must
3: have got this right now. How are they doing it? That's how it was first isolated, yeah. You literally take some graphite, um, which is stacks of graphene, billions and billions of them all stacked up like a huge sort of sca- shaggy and scooby-doo sandwich, and you just use Salatap to peel off the top layer. That is still the best way to give you the highest quality graphene. Um, other larger scale manufacturing methods still can't meet that quality. Um, but the leading one is called chemical vapour deepest position basically use methane which is a gas and it's got carbon in it you pipe it over this copper foil it's heated up to about a thousand degrees and that breaks down and forms these sort of sheets of graphene that slowly accumulate over it and then you very very delicately peel it off and try and stick it to whatever backing you need. Who's making this and what are we going to see it in and when? Well the largest scale manufacturing operations are over in China uh, and it's remarkably difficult to actually get details about where they are with their... Samsung, the phone maker, have already been showing around prototype devices that incorporate graphene touchscreens. The big question is, can you make it good enough quality cheaply enough to make it a reasonable replacement? There's lots of industry watchers saying that the prices are going to come down enough, the manufacturing is going to improve enough that it's going to happen this year. And there's certainly a lot of Chinese companies that are making a lot of this stuff. So we'll just have to wait and see.
1: Brilliant. Mark Peplow's prediction for 2014. Thank you very much, Mark. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. Chris Smith, Dave Ansell, Dominic Ford and Mark Peplow. We're taking your science questions, any science question on anything. If you want to get in touch, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. Les is with us. Hello, Les. Hello. What can we do for you? Happy yeah. New Year, by the way.
5: Oh, yeah. And to you, Chris. As a local guy, I'm, I'm disabled using mobility scooters. to get around a lot and... Um, Crossing Christpiece and New Square, especially in Cambridge, vast majority of people seem to walk on the right-hand side of the paved area bits. And um, I was in town a bit earlier a few days ago, and it was much quieter. You know, and um, everybody walked on their left. And it, you know, I've noticed this bit about walking on the right for ages, but you know, it just struck me as being more obvious when I see it that bit you know, at that slightly different time of day.
1: So are you asking then why we tend to have this preponderance to walk on the right or walk on the left? Yeah, yeah. I think there are two aspects to this. I don't know what you guys think, but, I mean, for my four penneth, I would say first and foremost that in the same way that fish make a big shoal, and they all swim in one sort of direction once someone's shown everyone where to go. I think that an element of this is that once one group of people are doing one thing, people tend to follow. So if everyone happens to be on the left, then more people are going to go on the left than on the right, because we do tend to, because we're social animals, copy each other. But also... There is an intrinsic brain bias towards certain parts of the, of, the, of the world we live in, in terms of how we attend to it and how we tend to favour it. And Dominic, who's very interested in computing and website design, will know this very well, that anyone who designs websites is told, put
2: the most important content where, Dominic? On the left-hand side, because people read from left to right, the first thing they see is on the left.
1: Absolutely. So put your most important content at the top and on the left, because that's where people visually attend to more. And also, um, for some reason, we think that that part of the brain that's subserving that vision on the left is also more receptive to information being presented in that way.
2: I think there's also a social aspect to walking on the right side of the road, because hikers are actually often told to walk on that side, because then you've got the traffic driving on the left coming towards you so you can see the car that's about to come very close to you, whereas if you walk on the left, you can't see the car coming up behind you.
1: Good point. Uh, Les, are you running people down? Is that what it is?
5: Yeah, no, I deliberately go on the, on the left, just the hell of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. that.
1: You know, if, you, if you're a racehorse, then horses actually perform much better on races run in one direction than the other, and they tend to have an intrinsic bias for one side over the other. Um, the majority of horses, I think, are right legged and so they prefer to run with that leg as their leading leg and if you run them in the opposite direction they're something of a disadvantage i don't know why they should have that particular bias because we think humans have a side bias because as dominic pointed out there's language in the brain and we we think that language um, being on one side of our brain makes that side of the brain dominant and that might be the reason but anyway you stay safe and try not to run too many people over thank you very much Les. yeah
5: thank
1: you bye let's talk to peter hello Hello,
5: peter hello i'm afraid mine is equally bizarre (laughs) Keep fit, I uh, deliver weekly newspapers, so I've got a trolley for doing that. The trolley in question has got no suspension, but it does have fairly broad wheels to take the load. Now, I've noticed that when the trolley is empty, if I'm pulling it along the path, it's actually extremely noisy. It rattles a lot. But if I pull it along the verge adjacent to the path, which is not particularly even and not particularly smooth, but it is at least grassy, the noise drops by probably 20 to 30 decibels. Any idea why, considering the surface really should be considered to be a bit rougher than the surface uh, that's supposedly smooth of the path itself?
4: Dave? I guess this is down to sort of how much energy absorption there is, because if you're driving over a very, very hard surface, which is a bit rough, then if your wheel drives into, even over quite a small bump, then the only the only thing that can happen is that the wheel has to get out of the way of that bump so the trolley's got to move up and it will actually move up really quite fast because it's got to get over that bump quite quickly and so it'll get thrown up and then the trolley will fall back down again and go thump Uh, especially if it's very light. If there's a lot of weight on there, then the tyres might deflect instead. But when it's very, very light, the trolley's just going to move up and it will bounce and rattle. Whereas if you're on a soft material like grass, then there's two options. Either the trolley can go up or the ground can go down. And if you're lucky, then the ground will go down, and so it shouldn't throw things up and down as fast and it should be a lot quieter. I think you're right. It's about
2: the absorbency because the grass is softer, so it's a more absorbent material. So that means it can absorb that energy as heating up the grass, whereas concrete is very hard. So that's not going to absorb the energy by deforming. It's going to have to dissipate oh, that energy by sound.
1: One thing that's quite interesting, my experience, um, I don't know if you've ever driven on dirt roads. Have either of you have ever driven on a, a dirt road? Oh, yeah. And um, you get corrugations forming on the road. Have you seen this? Mm. Have you seen this, Peter?
5: Yeah. I can't say I've driven much on dirt roads, but you, what you're basically saying is that in the direction of travel, it's like going across furrows, the, the corrugations. done. Yes, that th- that's about? right.
1: You see these corrugations, you think, where do they come from? And actually, this is the oscillations of the shock absorbers on the vehicles, because as the vehicle goes up over a little bump, it, it has a damping effect of the shock absorber. And so it takes time for the, the car to stop moving, and that oscillation is pretty standard from one vehicle to the next, so it ends up pushing lots of dust into little ridges that slowly build up to make these corrugations in the road. And I thought when I was driving on these in the middle of nowhere in Australia, because if you drive slowly on them, it rattles the car to pieces, and I thought they must be made of rock or stone or something, and in the end I got out and went over to one of these things and kicked it in frustration because it was slowing me down so much I was driving so slowly and the car was shaking, and it's just dust. So I thought, well, if I drive really fast, actually then actually the period of oscillation of my shock absorbers will be out of phase with the people who've gone along here slowly and therefore I will miss these bumps and therefore it should be a gentle journey because I'll just be like driving over piles of sand. So I tried it and instead of going 50 kilometres an hour, I went 70 for a bit and solved the problem. So you're driving a trolley too slowly, Peter. That's what it is. Go faster. <laughs>
5: <laughs> OK, I should mention that the trolley doesn't have tyres. We're talking solid nylon wheels here, so your explanation would actually uh, fit very well. Um, but, you know, it, it does mean that the supposedly smooth paved surface actually is far from smooth. Um, and it wasn't actually concrete. It was um, apparently smooth tarmac, so even that uh, must have sufficient grain to cause quite a lot of vibration.
1: Indeed. Well, thank you very much, Peter. It's very kind of you to, to phone in. Good to very have you on the programme.
5: interesting answer.
1: Thank you. Cheers good to have you with us we're listening to the naked scientists with chris smith with dave ansell dominic ford and mark peplow we're answering your science questions this week so if you have a question for us like peter or les before him email chris at scientist.com or you can tweet at naked scientists dominic one for you peter pate wants to know how fast does gravity propagate so in other words how the, the sun's hanging onto the earth if the sun went away, all of a sudden, how long would we still feel the gravity?
2: So yes, gravity is this force that binds everything in the universe together. There's this quite fundamental principle in physics that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. And so physicists have rather suspected on the basis of that, that gravity must propagate a finite speed at the speed of light, because if it happened instantaneously then wobbling something from side to side somewhere in the universe would essentially be propagating information about how that thing was moving faster than the speed of light and violating this very fundamental principle. It's been obviously quite hard to test, because trying to find some experimental setup where you test whether gravity propagates faster than the speed of light is really quite a challenge. But actually in the last 10 years or so, we have done that with objects called pulsars, which are very compact neutron stars. They're basically the mass of a star in the size of a mile or two across. And some of these things are very close to one another, spinning around each other very fast. And actually, Einstein's theory of general relativity, which is the best description of gravity we have, predicts that when these things are orbiting very fast, they should produce what's called gravitational waves, which are ripples of gravity that travel out at the speed of light. And if they're doing that, they should be gradually losing energy through these gravitational waves. In fact, we have found pulsar binary pairs that seem to be gradually getting closer and closer together, as if they're losing energy, at exactly the rate that Einstein predicts if gravity travels at the speed of light.
3: Mark, as the pulsars change their rate, you're sort of inferring the existence of gravity waves. What would it take to actually detect the
2: gravity waves themselves? Well, there are a number of teams around the world who are trying to build detectors to detect these ripples of gravity moving through space. And the sensitivity you need to do that is is absolutely mind-boggling. You're talking about distances of about a mile that you're sending light beams down, and you're trying to see whether gravity is causing that distance to ripple by about the size of an atom. So you've got an experimental setup a mile long, and you're trying to detect something that's moving by the width of an atom. And no one has yet detected those gravitational waves. They are, I think, getting quite close, incredibly. I'm always quite incredulous when I hear about these experiments because they sound bonkers to me. But I, I think in the next decade or so, we might actually start to detect the ripples in space-time. Dominic and Mark, thank you very much. Hello, Chris. Hello.
1: Hello. So tell us about this chemistry. You were going to give us a contribution to Nina's question at the beginning about making gunpowder that's nice colours.
6: Yes, I think... Um they would have used potassium nitrate, not potassium metal, um, as the oxidant. And I think in their experiment, they would have tried the nitrates of the barium and strontium and um, other metals like that. The problem is that those particular salts crystallize with a lot of water in the crystals. They're hydrated, which would have rather damped down the reaction. And the firework makers, in fact, normally use chlorates or chlorides, because the chlorides are volatile and uh, vaporise in the flame and give the colour much more effectively. So I think the problem, though, would have been that these salts were hydrated and this would have damped the reaction down a bit.
1: Super. Thank you very much, Chris. Are you a chemist by profession?
6: I trained in it, but I've never worked in it, but I've studied it for pleasure all my life.
1: And do you make fireworks?
6: Uh, No. You try doing anything in practical chemistry at home these days, you get the attention of the police, especially if, like me, you were born in Northern Ireland, they think you're making either drugs or bombs.
1: (laughs) Oh dear, a friend of mine was making um, some elderflower cordial the other day, and uh, so she went to the chemist and said, can I have a very large pot of vitamin C, ascorbic acid, it's white powder, isn't it? And the chemist looked at her very suspiciously because they thought she wanted it to cut drugs with.
6: I found exactly the same problem. I tried to get vitamin C for an experiment of my own and was told exactly... Did the same thing i went to the health food shop and got it there instead
1: there you go chris <laughs> great to have you on the program before you go would you like to speculate how many pieces of toast you can make with the energy in a lightning bolt which is our quiz question for this week
5: oh
6: 20 million i don't know i'm just guessing
1: chris in cambridge says 20 million but thank you very much for your chemical insights it's great to have you on the program
6: well thank you very much happy
7: new year to happy you all. new
1: year to you
6: chris bye bye uh
1: bavash hello Happy
6: New Year. Dr.
7: Happy
1: Chris. New Year, yes. Good to talk to you. So what, what have you got for us?
7: Pleasure, sir. Okay, film, uh, Under Siege, the Steven Seagal film, yeah? Basically, they they, they mentioned, um, well, this is just to check the veracity of the statement with you, obviously, yeah, sir? Uh, well, they mentioned how in they understood, uh, physicists understood the mechanisms of nuclear technology after they had perused ancient Indian texts like the Bhagavad Gita, which go back about 5,000 years, I believe, yeah? Uh, very ancient text amongst the first, actually, yeah? And um, they mentioned how, yeah, they, they perused the texts and and um, they, they understood the nuclear physics from reading these texts. Now, uh, um, juxtaposed to that um, question and need answering, um, I found out that an ancient Indian civilization, the Harappans, and... Um, which go about, about 5,000 years and made complex cities, built at um, degrees and angles from the monsoons every year and so forth. Yeah. And they built them around the time they built the pyramids. Now, they had uh, amongst the first environment and conservation programs that we know in uh, archaeological literature. So they, they obviously knew a thing or two about science, even going back um, in the Neolithic. Sir. So, what well, I mean... How, how good is um, the, the science behind this or the veracity, you know? Um, well, let's ask
1: Dominic, because do think... uh, D- Dominic's terribly eager. He's champing at the bit to, to get in here. Dominic, wh- what do you think?
7: Certainly, there is quite a lot of
2: interesting science in India. And one of the reasons for that is to do with the legacy of ancient Greece, which actually travelled to India. I think it was through the Persian Empire. And in, in fact... In the sort of first few centuries AD, India was quite a big mathematical centre because ancient Greek knowledge had been largely lost in the West but it was still flourishing in the East and it was only, in fact, in, in about the 12th century when it came back to the West. In terms of nuclear physics, I've not heard anything about that. I've certainly heard lots about ancient Greek astronomy being found in text in India but I don't think the ancient Greeks ever got anywhere
4: near nuclear physics. I, though there was a nuclear reactor, a very very ancient nuclear a- reactor which developed in somewhere in Africa, but this was um, a bi- billions of years ago when a load of um, bacteria um, evolved, obviously evolved to collect uranium because it kept them nice and warm and they, they collected so much that it actually went critical and there's, you know if you look in the rocks you can see the results of a nuclear reactor, you know, a bit from a, billion, a couple of billion years ago um, but it wasn't anything to do with humans.
1: It's dubbed a georeactor or something, and, isn't it? Oh, yeah so, I, I don't know the name. Th- actually bugs living in the chernobyl nuclear power station there's a kind of fungus that's evolved to make extra large amounts of melanin the same stuff that makes our skin black because it's a, a very uh, electron rich molecule it's very good at interrupting the kinds of particles that give rise to the radiation that's coming out of the core of that melted down reactor so the the fungus is flourishing on the inside of the reactor vessel even even now so so bugs can tolerate the really quite extreme conditions can't they yeah, I mean, life seems to be able to survive in all sorts of bizarre places. This isn't a bizarre question. It's about microwave ovens, which is a part of the fodder of the Naked Scientist's experimental arsenal. This person says, A-C-E-N-G dot A-T, interesting name, says, if microwave ovens
4: are made of metal, why don't they spark off themselves? Is a very good question. So the reason why metal sparks in a microwave is that um, the way a microwave cooks is it essentially applies a very rapidly changing electric field inside the, inside the box. It does that using things called microwaves, which are a form of light. And this causes electric currents to flow back and forwards in your food. And if you put a piece of metal in there, it conducts much better than your food. And you will get um, current flowing backwards and forwards in that metal. Now, if that metal is on its own and, and sort of insulated from everything else, that will just cause currents flow through it and it'll get very, very hot and you'll have a hot piece of metal. You can actually melt aluminium like this. There's a form of aluminium casting which involves melting these in a microwave. It's not something I've tried, which is probably a good thing. But if you have two pieces of metal next to each other and you've got electricity current sloshing backwards and forwards in these two bits of metal, then at some point you might get a very high voltage at one and a very low voltage at the other and you'll get electricity jumping through the air gap in between. You get a spark. But if it's all one piece of metal, then you don't get any sparks. So if you've got one solid case, which is all one piece of metal, and it's all connected together and the door has got special connections, so it's all together it'll tend to reflect the microwaves rather than absorbing them and you don't get any sparks but you nonetheless will get a current induced in
1: the case of the microwave by the electromagnetic wave of the microwave inside the oven itself although you're saying it'll largely reflect so it'll be a small one
4: so the current in fact the current is what is creating
1: the electric fields and magnetic fields which cause it to reflect Dave, thank you very much. If you have a question for The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith, that's me, Dave Ansell, Dominic Ford and Mark Peplow, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. Dominic,
2: what are your big picks for 2014? Well, I guess for me the question of what I'm looking forward to in 2014 is actually quite easy because it's a year I've been looking forward to for about a decade because back in 2004 the European Space Agency launched this spacecraft called Rosetta, which was going to be the first spacecraft to land on the surface of a comet. This is comet 67P cheryov gerasimenko which is quite a mouthful. But 10 years ago, when they told us it was going to be 2014, before... Rosetta would land on the surface of this comet. Of course, it seemed like it was going to be forever away. And now suddenly, here we are, 2014. And in fact, in just three weeks' time, on January 20th, they're going to wake up this spacecraft and it's going to start its descent towards this comet, which it should meet. in around about May, they're going to burn its thrusters and put it into orbit around this comet. And then there's this really exciting year ahead because in August They are hoping to make a really quite close approach to this comet, see what its surface looks like. They're expecting it to be a snowy sort of surface with some rock in there. They're not quite sure how much rock versus snow they're going to see. And then, all being well in November, they're going to deploy a small landing craft, which is actually going to go down onto the surface of this comet. It's got lots of springs, so it will hopefully have a soft landing on this snowy surface. And then this is a comet which is travelling towards the sun a bit like comet Isom, which, of course, was in the news last month, but didn't survive its encounter with the Sun. Now, Joe Semenko is not having quite such an exciting encounter. It's been picked, I guess, as a safe bet. It's an active comet, but it's not too active. And so, in 2015, its surface is going to start warming up as it moves towards the Sun. It'll be interesting to start seeing that snow subliming into the vacuum of space. This comet will start to form a tail. And, of course, we'll have this thing actually on the surface of this comet, seeing this stuff boiling off the surface. And then in August 2015, it's actually going to be at closest approach to the Sun, and we'll, we'll hopefully see really interesting things about how comets behave that close to the Sun.
1: What can you tell us about this um, comet's history
2: and its origins? Well, it's a bit of a safe bet. It goes around the Sun every seven years. It's not a tremendously active comet. but It's active enough that we expect to see processes happening on the surface. Now, comets in general are are fascinating because they come from the outskirts of the solar system and we think they're quite primordial material. This is the sort of stuff that the planets were made out of before the sun warmed them up and caused some of the water to sublime off into space and cause chemical reactions to start. So... Both understanding the chemistry of what the comets are made of, but also how they behave when they get close to the sun, they get hot and they start to form tails, which we've never really had a, a good idea of. So when we look at comets like Ison, we have no idea whether they're going to survive their encounters with the sun.
3: Besides hanging on for grim death, what, what, what measurements is this lander going to take? What sort of things is it actually going to going to see in detail on the comet's surface?
2: I mean, I think one of the most fascinating things for everyone is just going to be the pictures that we Mm. see, because I don't think we have a very good idea what the surface of the comet looks like. But it's also going to be measuring the ions in the the vicinity of the the spacecraft and just looking at what chemical species are coming off the surface. Is this pure water? Are there other volatile elements? Are there uh, hydrocarbons like ethane, methane in there? And just finding out what this comet is really made of down Mm. there on the surface.
1: It's going to be an interesting year then, isn't it?
2: Absolutely fascinating. I mean, nothing like this has happened before. We've we've had spacecraft fly past Comet Halley, but flying past is a very different thing from actually being there on the surface and seeing the surface of this incredible object.
1: Mind-boggling, isn't it, to think we're actually able to put things on things like comets these days. Thank you, Dominic. And uh, Mark, you've had your eye on China as well. (laughs)
3: Yeah, I I mean, this year is going to be a a really interesting year for watching China's space programme. It's probably got the most ambitious space programme in the world at the moment, um, basically because they've got the money and the manpower and and especially the political will to actually push forward on these huge projects. Um, At the moment, of course, we've got the Chinese Jade Rabbit rover um, uh, driving around the moon. It landed in December, and it's going to spend um, the next few weeks and possibly months surveying the lunar surface. Um, they say to assess its geological resources, which is <laughs> uh, obviously raises this, this prospect of uh, uh, actually mining on the moon, although clearly it's not going to do that yet. Um, but over the course of this year, one of the biggest construction projects in the world is going to come towards completion, and that's China's fourth space launch facility. It's on Hainan Island, uh, and it should be operational by the end of the year. That will allow it to um, launch spec spectacularly large rockets, much bigger than what it can do at the moment. Those are the rockets that it needs um, to start doing manned missions that would actually take astronauts to the moon, and that is on the cards for China's space program. For example, the Chinese Academy of Sciences um, released a roadmap quite recently, which showed these, these sort of continual steps: really, a crude lunar base, a crude mission to Mars, robotic exploration of other planets over the coming decades. And so far, with the creation of a, an orbiting space lab and, and the manned orbiting missions that they've done so far. They've basically met every single milestone that they said they would at the time they would efficiently. Um, it all seems to be going very smoothly indeed. Are they going to share these facilities? Are there any
1: plans for collaboration or is this uniquely going to be a Chinese effort?
3: Yes, basically. This is true of any nation, I suspect, in space. Where it suits that nation to collaborate internationally, it will do so. If you look at the timeline of what they're going to be doing, they have a second space lab that's meant to be going up in, in 2015 and then a full-scale space station due for 2020. That's a key date. That's when the International Space Station runs out of funding and when it may well stop operation. And the Chinese are, are at this stage, saying that they will quite happily fill that void. So, yes, there is the potential potential... potential for collaboration on that Chinese-built space station.
1: Now this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith with Dave Ansel and Dominic Ford and with Mark Peplow. We're answering your science questions and we're also asking you a question which is can you tell us how many pieces of toast do you think you could make with the energy in the average lightning bolt? We've had an, a number of speculations so far. Now I've got an email from Mark. He says As the next firefighter I've seen what lightning can do to houses and trees. In relation to toast, I'm going to go for a million and I'd better get a very large tub of butter. Probably on the right lines there Mark. <laughs> Mark Peplow, question for you from Peter Bondi. He says, um, why is there no liquid form of carbon? Or is there?
3: Well funnily enough there is a liquid form of carbon but it's extremely unusual and when you think about carbon you normally think of things like graphite the lead in your pencil uh, which we were talking about before in the context of graphene you think about diamonds um, uh, you might even think about Buckminster fullerene uh, these uh, cages of 60 carbon atoms that look like footballs Um, all of these are held together by very very strong chemical bonds uh, covalent bonds and that means that you need to hate up um, uh, carbon elemental carbon um, a huge amount before you can actually start to separate those atoms in fact once you heat it up to about 3600 degrees C um, you finally get to pull those atoms apart and it turns into a gas it sublimes so it normally goes from a solid to a gas Um, if you want it to be a liquid you have to put it under incredible pressure while you're actually heating it up that much so it's only under very very certain uh, sort of extreme circumstances that you can force carbon uh, to be a liquid.
1: Um, Aren't people using carbon compounds like carbon dioxide as liquids though? Because I think this is a whole area of what we call green chemistry now, isn't it? People have discovered instead of buying expensive solvents to dissolve things and even make decaffeinated coffee, you can pressurised CO2, carbon dioxide, and it becomes liquid, supercritical CO2, and it's it's
3: got the same properties as many industrial solvents, except that it's pretty harmless. That's right. Uh, carbon dioxide is used, you're right, uh, to decaffeinate coffee, um, because if you squeeze carbon dioxide... Very different from carbon; it behaves as a, a different chemical. Um, if you squeeze it enough, um, uh, then it turns into a liquid, like you said, a supercritical liquid, um, uh, because it only exists um, past that critical point when you when you've got it under extreme pressure. Um, and as a, a green solvent, it's certainly a lot better to work with than what they used before, which was a I can't remember which chlorinated solvent it was. It might have been dichloromethane or chloroform or something like that, but filthy stuff, a real pain to dispose of and if you're exposed to it as a worker um, it's going to make a right mess of your lungs so uh, carbon dioxide is just a lot easier to work with because of course when you're finished with it in theory you can just release it to the atmosphere
1: sounds good i've heard from ed who says he reckons the hundred thousand mark is the right sort of number for the toast we'll find out towards the end of the program if you're on the right lines ed now i don't know if you guys saw the uh, news just ahead of christmas time magazine I had a reporter who said that they got a phone call from this lady who was trying to sell some health insurance. Did did you catch up with this, any of you guys? And um, this person became a bit suspicious of the caller because it sounded a little bit robotic. So they decided, having got the phone number for this lady who said her name was Samantha, to ring her back. And in the end, the whole office at time were ringing this lady to, to try to establish who she was. It It looks like there are now companies who are actively using robots to try to sell things to you and they're pretty convincing i've obtained the soundtrack of one of the conversations so you'll hear one of their people pressing this person to reveal who she is quite hard and she puts up quite a good fight actually
8: hello how are you today okay how are you good well i'm calling about an online request you once made about health insurance coverage We work with all major companies and compare all the rates for you. I can get you a quote in about five minutes, okay?
0: Are you a robot?
8: (laughs) I am a real person. Can you hear me okay?
0: I can hear you just fine, but you sound like a robot.
8: I understand. Can we continue? Sure. Are you currently on Medicare?
0: No. Why are the questions so personal?
8: We received your online application for health insurance, and if you're still looking for affordable health insurance with excellent coverage, we can give you a free quote.
0: Why should I give my information to you?
8: I understand, but we do work with all carriers, and I can get you a low rate. Getting a quote will only take a minute, okay?
0: You really do sound like a robot.
8: I am a real person. Maybe we have a bad connection. I'm sorry about that. Are you sure? Yes. Sure.
0: I'm going to hang up now.
8: Okay.
0: Have a nice day. Thank you.
1: I have to say, though, now I've told you that that was phony and that lady doesn't really exist,
2: that's a robot. Were you not nonetheless a little bit surprised? a lot of people wouldn't have been suspecting it might have been a robot and so I think they could have been quite taken in.
4: And unless you actually really pushed her, she did actually sound very good. I mean the intonation sounded quite natural. Quite plausible wasn't yeah. it? Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, it's interesting actually when you when you think about by the end of the conversation it, it's becoming increasingly clear that it, it's not a real person at the end and you start to think about what what's the factor that's um, making the robot trip up. Is it um, the difficulties with the artificial intelligence of working this out? Or is it actually still that voice recognition um, in sort of free-form situations rather than in very sort of controlled, I want to book to see this film on Friday, uh, voice recognition in a freeform sense is still extremely hard to do, isn't it?
2: Well, I guess in the case of that conversation, the robot may have been very good at having the particular conversation it had been programmed to have, mm. but it would have its depth in that conversation because mm. it was being asked questions it wasn't used to facing.
1: I nonetheless am quite surprised that we've got this level of technology being applied to marketing. And one wonders whether or not we've all received a phone call from someone that doesn't exist. Because what they were doing, that company, was when people then provided the details, they then said, well, would you be interested in signing up? If they say yes, it then says, I'll just pass you on to a colleague. And it then went through to a
4: human who would actually then close the deal. I've definitely been phoned up by computer systems, but much more obvious ones than that.
1: Yeah, I was quite surprised, and and I Mm. think that's slightly unnerving, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it really is.
1: I was asking uh, for suggestions of things people would like to see invented. Colm Doyle has got in touch via Facebook, facebook.com slash the naked scientists, and says, um, I would like to see invented some solar-powered
4: paint, but I'm pretty sure we already have solar paints. I think various people have been developing them for steels. I'm not sure I haven't seen a lot of them yet. Um, And they're not a case of just slapping them on in your house, I don't think.
3: We certainly have solar-powered windows um, uh, where you've got impregnated in the glass um, uh, chemicals that can absorb light and convert that into electricity. Uh, At the moment, the ones that are available aren't aren't terribly efficient, but people are working on new materials um, called perovskites at the moment. And actually, funnily enough, this year is probably going to be a very big year for perovskite research because they're improving the efficiency of them incredibly quickly um, to the stage where they're starting to rival traditional silicon solar cells.
2: I think uh, last year we had somebody on the show who was talking about putting algae on the side of houses. Now, that, it only works if you want your house to be green, but they were growing algae on the sides of buildings, and then you could filter off that algae and burn it and use it as a fuel. So if you don't mind your house being green, that's a way of getting fuel out of out of the green side of your house.
1: So houses can be green quite literally as well as... Exactly as so. Uh, thank you. Now, don't forget, we've also got an experiment we, we want to run on the programme, which you can take part in at home. Dave has already said what he needs you to grab uh, is a about a half litre fizzy drink bottle and lid and you're going to need some vinegar, some bicarbonate of soda. Dave's also bought his electric drill in. I'm not sure what he's going to do with that and some other bits and pieces. So what do you need people now
4: to do with this gadgetry, Dave? So what I'm attempting to do is essentially build something like a very, very low-tech aerosol with a jet out the top. So I'm going to make that with a straw but I need to make a hole for the straw in the lid first. So I will drill a hole in this lid carefully not putting my hands behind it and then put a bit of straw through the lid
1: So this is just now a drinking bottle with plastic lid as a hole in the centre of it, drinking straw threaded through and What are you doing now? You're putting plasticine or something? So now I
4: want to try and seal that so everything comes out through the straw and not round the edge. So I'm going to put some plasticine on the outside and on the inside. Obviously not blocking up the hole. Not blocking up the hole, but round the edge, a bit like kind of sealing it in like bathroom sealant and then I'd trim off that straw. I'm going to use one I made earlier because I know that one works. OK, so what we've got is a bottle with a lid and a straw, about an inch of straw projecting through the lid. Yeah. Then what we don't want is the end with the straw sticking up. So I've put some extra plasticine around near the lid of the bottle just to weight that down. This so is actually on the ne- neck of the bottle where you're going to screw the lid
1: on. You've so got extra weight. Seven is to tip the bottle? Just to
4: tip the b- bottle up right. because otherwise if, it, if, it go, if it, the nose end, if the other end ends up too low then you just get gas coming out rather than water water which is what we want for our jet um right. i'm going to add some a bit of water um just to act as just to dilute it down and a load of vinegar into here right so we're putting in some
1: just uh, not not more vinegar just using clear um, I'm, I'm, it doesn't matter recipe is not not really not particularly important.
4: specific i'm going to fill this up sort of a third half full of vinegar and water okay. maybe about half and half water maybe a bit more maybe about three, um, two-thirds water uh, if you put more water in, it just goes a bit more slowly, which can actually be a good idea. Oh, we want fast. We want fast. not that like fast. Yep. And then what, what do you want people to do after that? And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a small spoonful of bicarbonate of soda, throw that in, put the lid on very quickly, and then put it in my pseudo bath. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, you've got a... Well, it looks like the kitchen sink has come into the studio. We've got a plastic bowl full of
4: water over here. So, yeah, this is best done in a bath. So I've, I've brought a big tray of water, which I'm going to put it in, and uh, make sure that the neck of the bottle is lower, and then leave it to react and see what
1: happens so have a go and tell us what you what you get, getting if your jet-powered boat is a success we've heard from full circle man that's Bavish and he says I reckon 100 million pieces of toast gosh there's an answer thank you very much Bavish now there was another question here which I thought was quite fun for Dominic and just grab it This one has come in from Peter Conway, who says, Why are there two high tides a day? If tides are caused by the gravity of the moon, why is there a high tide on the side of the Earth furthest away from the moon, as
2: well as on the side closest to us? Well, tides certainly are caused by the gravity of the moon, which is always pulling the Earth very gently towards the moon. Now, the side of the Earth, which is faced directly towards the moon, is slightly closer to the Moon than the middle of the Earth. And that means it feels a slightly stronger pull, because gravity decreases with distance from the Moon. And so that's being pulled more strongly towards the Moon, and so you can understand why you get a high tide there, because water is being pulled there more strongly towards the Moon. Now, on the far side, the pull towards the Moon is weaker than anywhere else on the Earth, just because it's further away from the Moon. And that means the Moon is pulling down on that water on the far side less strongly than elsewhere. And so it rises up away from the Moon, in the opposite direction from the Moon, to form this second high tide. So you've got two, one on either opposite side of the the Earth.
1: And as the planet turns, it's turning through both both of those bulges of water. So you get high tide number one, then it takes 12 hours to get round to the other side, which is half a rotation, half a day, and there's the second bulge, second high tide.
2: Exactly so. Those two bulges stay in the same place in space, more or less, on, on the line through the Earth to, to the Moon, and the Earth is rotating once every 24 hours, so we move through one of those two bulges every 12 hours, as you say. And
1: just very briefly, Dominic, the difference between a spring and a neap tide, how does that happen and why?
2: Oh, now, the Sun also produces tides. They're about half the uh, strength of the lunar tides, and so that, that's another signal on top of the, the lunar tides, and sometimes the, the Sun and, and Moon tides coincide, and sometimes they don't. They coincide at full Moon a new moon, and then you have tides which can be 30-40% higher than at other times of the month when the moon and the sun are 90 degrees apart in the sky when you have what are called neap tides which are much lower.
1: Super, Dominic, thank you very much. Dave, what have you had your eye on as
4: something likely to happen in 2014? With something which is gently building up and it's starting to get momentum and that's actually the price of renewable energy particularly solar power. For a long time it's always been thought of a really expensive form of power and everyone's having to put big subsidies on it and that means that all the power companies can actually control it because if, you, if you're getting too much of it you can cut the subsidy and it all makes sense. But what's starting to happen especially in sunny countries I think at the moment it's sort of in Arizona or in Hawaii places like that already it's actually cheaper to put up solar panels and make your electricity than it is to buy electricity off the electricity company and that all of a sudden does all sorts of scary things to electricity grids because why wouldn't you if you live there makes sense chuck up some solar panels you don't use any power during the day and um, This actually is a great for the a global warming, but the electricity companies are going to be having a nightmare because they're set up for producing all the power. But if all of a sudden they don't need to produce any power when it's sunny, they need to suddenly completely redesign their systems and it all gets very, very interesting. Doesn't that just mean that they have to
1: think dynamically about a, how they make their power more turn on and offable? Excuse the horrible phrase, but you know what I mean. And also, what about power storage? Because we've not really got much investment either currently or or previously, in mechanisms to store energy we're very good at getting rid of it, we're very good at not producing it, we're very good at overproducing it, but when we do overproduce it, we just make energy cheap for people, so
4: encouraging them to use it. Why don't we invest more in storage systems? I mean, it's a big problem. It's a very, very difficult problem. I mean, you can pump water up hills, but you actually run out of hills quite quickly, especially in a country like Britain. So, I mean, there are all sorts of people who are maybe ways of storing it in very, very large batteries or in pumping heat from one place to another, but this does suddenly become a very, very important important technology when you get all this cheap solar power and it's getting cheaper. Do you think the problem will go away to a certain extent when we get better at harnessing
1: hydrogen as a means of storing energy? Because hydrogen is obviously an ideal source because you merge it with oxygen, you make water, and then you reverse that equation and make oxygen again and get your hydrogen back. So it's a, a really good fuel because it's clean but eminently usable. But
4: but the danger at the moment has put people off. the other thing is the efficiency of the process. Unless you use very expensive catalysts like platinum, you end up losing a lot of the power in turning water into hydrogen and then um, turning it back again. And so, in fact, it's mostly they make hydrogen these days by breaking natural gas, gas rather than breaking down water, which is how you'd like them to do it. Now you opened by
1: saying this is more something to have your eye on for the year ahead. So are you saying then that your prediction for 2014 scientifically is, a, is an increase in renewable supply but
4: also a problem? brought about by that it's already kicking in places like um, arizona and spain are starting to charge people if they've got solar panels on their roof which seems crazy after what everybody's been encouraging them to put them on there i think it's going to start picking up and solar panels are probably going to keep getting cheaper but that's going to start to make life interesting for power companies
2: We have had an email come in from amos who wants to know what causes hail
1: well hail is effectively frozen rain And when water rises in the atmosphere on what are called updrafts, so when air is warmer and less dense, it tends to rise upwards into the sky, it will coalesce as droplets in clouds and if those droplets fall because the draft of air rising is not strong enough to hold them up against the pull downwards of gravity, then they'll fall down a bit. But then if another updraft comes along and pushes them back up again and they go through more cold air, then because they're already a droplet, they can get frozen in the cloud, then they come down again and go back up again. And as they're doing that, they can continuously meet more damp air, which will freeze onto the surface, which is your hailstone. And normally what happens is that that falls out of the cloud gets down towards the earth's surface and falls through air that's warm and so it melts and it falls as rain but if the air is already very cold on the way down the ice doesn't melt on the way down so it just falls as as a solid frozen what we call hydrometeor an ice crystal on the way down now let's carry on talking about water because dave's poised Tell you're excited about this one so you've built your boat you've got your half litre drink bottle and it's full of vinegar and uh, water And we've modified the lid to make a jet motor
4: and you're going to dump in the bicarb. Here we go. So I'm going to dump the bicarb in now. I'm going to put the lid on very quickly and then I'm going to put it in the bath.
1: Oh, cool. Apart from making no sound, which is not great for radio, (laughs) um, it, it is actually whooshing around. I'm quite impressed. And it leaves quite an exciting trail behind it as well as the stuff is jetting out of the
4: straw. So what's happening is that as the bicarbonate re- reacts with the vinegar, it produces lots of carbon dioxide gas. That expands and that pushes the water and vinegar out back through the straw. And you've essentially made a little rocket or a jet, which pushes the um, boat round. Are there any stronger acids that you could use that are available as household
3: chemicals? Um, obviously, I'm not suggesting people go out and buy concentrated nitric acid to try like this. LSD, but that's is, quite there, is, acid. <laughs> is there anything that you can actually get in the home that's that's going to give it a bit more oomph? than just vinegar
4: um, I don't think you really need to right. um, because I, I mean you can get plenty of pressure there with vinegar oh, okay. like the I, I actually diluted that vinegar down by a factor okay. of two or three my favourite Dave was when you made uh, a rocket
1: that was powered by liver and hydrogen peroxide that was really unpleasant for these <laughs> pots of oxygen. <laughs> I mean, we should explain to people pot. at home the reason why we were doing this. Is you've seen those water rockets when you sort of put the water in a drink bottle, pump it up, and then eventually it blows the bottle neck off of a bung so that the, the water is whooshing out backwards. The bottle accelerates upwards. And so we said, well, how can we optimise this a bit? And we said to Dave, well, you know, hydrogen peroxide breaks down to make oxygen and water. And so therefore, the oxygen is gas, takes up a lot of space. So how could we make lots of hydrogen peroxide break down really quickly? So we thought, well, what what's really good at breaking down hydrogen peroxide? And so we're thinking about this. Thought, well, carrots have got catalase. That's an enzyme that does that. But then someone in the office said... Well, liver is really good at breaking down hydrogen peroxide. So Dave went to the butchers. What did you buy? Calf liver or something expensive? I possibly
4: sheep <laughs> uh, liver, I think it was. Pigs liver or something. So, something fairly so how cheap. How did you
1: deploy the, um, the rocket? Chop, chopped it
4: up, um, put some hydrogen peroxide in the bottle... Chuck the liver in, jam the bung in very tight and turn upside down and retired to a safe distance. The video footage, which is
1: still online, is really rather impressive. You go to nakedsartist.com, just just look it up and you just see, you you took very fast footage of that, didn't you? Several hundred frames a second footage and you you see this thing go up and the bits of liver are sort of jetting out the back as it goes up into the air. It was quite impressive. It got to about 30 or 40 feet, didn't it? It did, it did. Dominic, um, Laura has got in touch and said, why does water
2: under a vacuum boil at room temperature? Yes, we do tend to think of water as existing as a solid below zero degrees, as a liquid up to 100 degrees and then boiling to steam. But in fact, those are three different states that water can take at any temperature. It's just that energetically, it prefers to be in particular states at different temperatures. And so, for example, you can have ice at four degrees C. And it will be melting, but it hasn't melted yet, despite being somewhat warmer than the nominal temperature we expect it to melt at. Now, the states that water likes to be in at different temperatures trains depending what the pressure is. So those temperatures of 0 degrees C and 100 degrees C are only what you have at, at atmospheric pressure, at the pressure of the air around us. If you take that air away, then because you haven't got the, the pressure of the air pushing in on it, water molecules inside that material will naturally want to be a bit more further spaced apart. And that means they're more likely to want to be a gas or a liquid than a solid. And so ice melts and, and water boils to a lower temperature. And so, yes, when you put water in a, in a vessel, in a vacuum, then it will boil quite happily at room temperature. It's quite extraordinary to see, actually, when you watch it happen. Dave, uh,
1: Les has been in touch on the telephone. And Les says... Why is the tide much less in the Mediterranean, perhaps it's been inspired by your jet-powered boat, than around England?
4: So Dominic's model worked beautifully for a world which just ha- was covered in water, then you get two bulges which move around the world. But we've got lots of continents going north-south north, north south, uh, around the world. So actually what happens as the, as the Earth turns under the moon is that the water in the Atlantic gets pulled towards one side of the Atlantic, and then as it goes around it gets pulled to the other side of the Atlantic, so the water just sloshes back and across the Atlantic, and you get this big wave travelling across the Atlantic. And when it hits the the sides of the oceans it piles up and gets higher in the same way as a wave breaks Mediterranean is much smaller it doesn't have this wave breaking effect so you so you don't get nearly as high tides thank you very much Dave and we're nearly at the end of the show so I should give you the
1: answer to our toast question it's about a hundred thousand because basically there's 10 billion joules of energy in a lightning bolt and it takes about a hundred thousand joules to bake a slice of toast so if you divide 10 billion which is 10 to the 10 by 10 to the 5 which is a hundred thousand you get about a hundred thousand In the meantime, let's find out what's been happening at a much smaller scale. Hannah is in search of what electrons do around atoms in our question of the week.
0: This week, we get ourselves in a bit of a tiz, trying to answer this. Hello, my name is John and I live in Melbourne, Australia. My question is, are electrons orbiting atoms? I've always wondered how come electrons seem to perpetually spin around a nucleus? What forces are involved and how come friction doesn't play a part in stopping their movement? Thanks, guys. Over to Dr Andrew Ponson, cosmologist at University College London. By around 1910 or so, it was was realised that atoms are composed of a heavy nucleus, which has a positive charge, and then some sort of cloud of negatively charged electrons. Now, the problem with that picture is that Opposite charges attract. So all those electrons are constantly being pulled in towards the nucleus in the same way that, for instance, an an apple is pulled towards the Earth by gravity. Obviously, though, atoms don't fall in on themselves and, and implode, so something is stopping the electrons from falling in. And Ernst Rutherford worked out that it must be that the electrons are doing something like flying in orbit around the nucleus of the atom. When you actually do some calculations, um, this idea that the electrons are flying around does actually hit a snag because when electrons zoom so fast, it turns out that they would then emit a lot of light and that would make them lose their energy and so they would spiral inwards after all. This was some of the first evidence that something was seriously wrong with physics at the beginning of the 20th century. A couple of years later, Niels Bohr, came out and said that that something must just simply be stopping this spiralling in of the electrons. They must somehow just be forced to stay in orbit. And we we now understand that Bohr's idea is actually correct and follows as a consequence of the weird rules of quantum mechanics. In quantum mechanics, the, the physical motion of an electron is replaced by a much more abstract idea known as a wave function. So Instead of moving around, the electron is effectively at all times smeared everywhere throughout a shell that's around the nucleus. Nonetheless, the, the wave function carries, for instance, angular momentum, so that makes it very, very much like the electron is orbiting around the nucleus. But this wave-like structure from quantum mechanics prevents the catastrophic spiralling-in effect
1: Due to the oddities of quantum mechanics, electrons have something called wave function, which means they can be smeared everywhere around the nucleus. And due to the weirdness of quantum mechanics, electrons can only exist in certain energy states, and none of these involve a crash into the nucleus. So they don't. Sticking with things that have a buzz, Lee wrote in with this.
2: How and why are bugs attracted to bright light?
1: And if you would like to get in touch with us in the meantime, it's chris at com. We're back with more Naked Science next week. Thank you very much to Dave Ansell, to Dominic Ford and to Mark Peplow. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the STFC. My name's Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.
0: Thinking about your next career move in research and development?